sorry tonight. But it's clear the scripture states that Abraham listened to his wife. And in this case, that was not a good thing to do. And he listened to his wife, and it was ultimately his decision. He was the one that God had established the covenant with. And so he made the decision to sleep with Hagar and produce Ishmael. In making this choice, we'll talk a little bit later about how that had major ramifications. We touched on that last week, too. But God made it clear that he had rejected Ishmael as the chosen one through which he would bring his line. And he told Abraham, it will be through your wife, Sarah, that I bring this, this nation of individuals that will be the apple of my eye. That will be through your wife, Sarah. And so Abraham's true heirs would come from Sarah. And then lastly, we talked about the key relationship last week of a type of Christ and how throughout Scripture, mostly in the Old Testament, God sometimes used an individual, an object, a, a circumstance, a situation, in this case an animal, to, to basically foreshadow what Jesus would one day do when he came to earth. And in this case, this ram that was caught in the thicket was a substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. We know that God had told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was deserving of being on the altar, but the ram took his place. And the idea that um, there would be one who would come one day future for us who would take our place on the cross for our sins. And that we know that would be Jesus. So from there, we move into tonight's content. And there's some really fun stuff in here. Um, I, I just sometimes want to remind people that the Bible, the Bible is an amazing book, obviously. We know it's God's inspired word to us, but there's some great stuff in God's word. And uh, for people that like drama, I mean, it's, it's chock full in there. So we're going to touch on a little bit of that tonight. But um, the first person that we encounter in our survey is Jacob. But before we talk about specifically Jacob, a tiny bit of background, before Abraham died, he saw to it that his son Isaac, so this is, we're backing up a little tiny bit, his son Isaac would have a wife that came from the family line back in Haran. He did not want Isaac to marry one of the pagan Canaanite women living close by. So Abraham sends his trusty servant, his oldest, most trusted servant, to Haran and says, you know, here are the circumstances. God's going to bring this woman. And sure enough, God brought Rebekah. And Rebecca, I mean, this woman's like, sure, I'll follow you back to Canaan. And so Rebecca follows the servant back, and she meets Isaac, and they marry. And, man, that's pretty easy. Uh, sometimes, you know, it'd be kind of nice if we're that easy today. Who has uh, Genesis 25, 19 to 23? I do. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old, when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Thank you. So Isaac knew full well about this Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that God had made with his father Abraham. And he knew that he was the heir through which this covenant would be fulfilled because he was the son of Sarah. There was only one problem. He was married to this great gal, Rebecca, but Rebecca wasn't having any kids. 
And so what does Isaac do? What does that passage say? Y'all might have it open, but anybody remember what he what he what he does about his wife's barrenness? Pray to he the prays. Lord. Compare that to Abraham, who says, I think I'll just go sleep with the help. Uh, this guy says, I'm going to talk to the Lord about this. So he prays about the situation. And the response is a set of twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, uh, you know, a lot of us in here are moms. We've been moms. I don't know if there's anybody here who's had twins. But the idea of God saying, oh, yo, sorry, sorry. Um, how would you like if, if, somebody, if God came and told you, you know, that these two girls are going to be two nations, you know, at odds against each other? I mean, that would be a little overwhelming. I'm so sorry, Miss Glenda. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you remember the girls fighting at all inside, but the idea of two nations are inside your body. That's pretty, that's pretty wild that even way back before these two would ever come out, God had already ordained that the younger of the twins, Jacob, would be his favored one. Jacob would be the one through which he would bring the, the nation Israel, his chosen line. Typically, we know in Old Testament history and in, in, in Jewish culture, the oldest received the blessing. The oldest was the favored, but God had made a change in the situation. The unfortunate part is that Jacob kept trying to move things along, and rather than waiting on God to bless him and to um, basically give him this special position, he, through deceit, trickery, lying, tried to take matters into his own hands. So at least two occasions that he did this. One, uh, he cheated his brother Esau out of, anybody remember the first one? A birthright over a bowl of stew or soup or pottage or whatever it is. That must have been some good soup. So he cheated Esau out of his birthright. Some people say he didn't really cheat him. I mean, he knew what he was offering. And Esau knew the, you know, what he was being asked, but he, he took advantage of a vulnerable moment. And then truly he cheated his brother Esau out of uh, Isaac Isaac's blessing, the family blessing, by pretending to be Esau, dressing up, and covering himself and, you know, creating this whole ruse when Isaac was older and poor in sight. So Jacob was unwilling at this point in his life to kind of let God's plan unfold. He kind of kept brushing, brushing things along and often with deceit and trickery. So the one of, well, probably there are lots of amazing events in Jacob's life, but probably the, the most important event in Jacob's life with regard to Jewish history is his fathering of 12 sons through four different women. Leah, her maidservant Zilpah, Rachel, and her maidservant Bilhah. So how in the world does this come about? Uh, well, I'm sure most of you remember the story. Much like Abraham wanted Isaac to have a wife who came from the family, the family, li the family, family line rather than the pagan women in Canaan, Isaac and Rebekah sent Jacob off. He said, okay, you've caused all this, you've stirred up all this strife with your brother, you need to go off, you need to go back to Haran, to the family, and find yourself a wife. And, you know, God will tell you where to go, basically. So, very similar to Abraham sending his servant, the difference was the prospective groom is on the prowl this time. So, rather than the trusty servant, it's, you know, the guy himself, the bachelor himself. So, this, I would encourage y'all to go back. Genesis 25, around there, there is, it is really interesting, I think. God directs Jacob back to his uncle Laban's land, property, family, and we're told in the passage that Carl just read that Laban was Rebekah's sister, so this is Isaac's wife's brother, so Jacob's aunt, uh, uncle, his uncle Laban, and he sees Rachel, Laban's daughter, 
And if you read the scripture, he just went right up and kissed her square on the mouth. Well, I guess it was on the mouth. But, like, he saw her, he kissed her, and then he wept bitterly. Like, he was so excited he found this woman. And literally love at first sight. He is smitten with this woman. Goes back, figures out, hey, her daddy is my uncle. This is family, so this is going to work out great. Who has Genesis 29, 15 to 20? I do. I didn't realize it was six verses here. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than, I, than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Thank you. There's some really great stuff in this passage. I love Laban's response. You know, Jacob's like, hey, I want to marry your daughter. He's like, well, I guess I might as well give her to you as some other guy, so whatever. I mean, he doesn't seem terribly <laughs> enthused, but anyway, he consents. But there's a there's a price to be paid. And so Jacob's going to have to work for seven years to get Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, I did a little research on the description of Leah. Leah's eyes were weak. Some other translations say she was weak in the eyes. Does anybody have anything vastly different? I don't know. Not everybody looked that verse up, but tender eyes. So, uh, you know, commentators vary on what that means. Anything from this was the Old Testament version of she had a great personality to um, she was just ugly to, um, you know, she had poor eyesight to, I read one, it said she had a form of chronic desert conjunctivitis and her eyes were, you know, irritated and, you know, gritty and weepy and whatever. So clearly the way Rachel is described, beautiful of form and face, regardless of what this means, Leah just didn't measure up in the looks department. Jacob is completely smitten with Rachel. But I, and one other thing I think is really neat about this passage is um, that last line, that Lynn read, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. I mean, don't say there's not romance in the Bible. That's just, that's poetic. Yeah, I won't ask my husband if he'd worked seven years for me, but anyway. Um, so Jacob asked Laban for Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban says, you got to work seven years, and then we'll have the big wedding. The wedding day comes. Y'all know the story. The wedding night comes, and surprise, it's Leah. So, you know, obviously Jacob's upset. He confronts Laban, and Laban says, oh, it's all in the name of tradition. we got to marry the oldest one off first, finish out the week, I'll give you Rachel, but then you're on the hook for another seven years. So, and then we'll call it square, so Jacob, you know, says fine. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a serious bait and switch. So, isn't it interesting that at this point in his life, God allows Jacob to get a little taste of his own medicine, the deceit, the trickery that he had employed against his brother Esau is now coming back to kind of haunt him a little bit. So I think it's interesting. I don't know that I would say it's payback, but I just think that it's interesting God lets him kind of experience the other side of that. Now, much like Abraham, Jacob took these two women as wives, 
uh, Leah and Rachel, and he also took their handmaidens. Now, some, it, it gets a little fuzzy. Were these truly, did he actually have four wives? Were these concubines? Were they just mistresses? Different passages say different things. Like one, I think Rachel says a wife, and Leah says, you know, he just gave, she gave her to Jacob. It's a little fuzzy. But the idea is he had relations with all four women and produced offspring. Now, there's a little parenthetical insert here. This kind of bothers me. I don't know about anybody else, but it bothers me that the patriarchs of the Old Testament, these stalwart, you know, uh, figures that love God and that were trying to obey God and do what he said and that he was blessing, are running around with multiple wives and girlfriends and sleeping with the help, and it just bugs me. And so, of course, you know, when when that happens, what do I do? I call my dad and say, (laughs) so, but I'd already done some research, and we talked about it, and he said, I think you're on the right track. So four little comments about this. First of all, as of yet, the law has not been given. That is given to Moses when the children of Israel are in the wilderness. So there is no law that they can go back and Jacob could say, oh, I can't take Bilhah and Zilpah because that's, you know, that's against the rules. There's no law yet. And so there's nothing condoning more than one wife or technically even adultery. Now that said, I don't think that means that these individuals had, woo you know, the sky's the limit, we can do whatever we want. They still had the pattern, God's pattern for the family way back from the Garden of Eden, one man, one woman for life. Dr. J. Vernon, J. Vernon McGee, I read his, I watched a YouTube video, it was like just the audio of him, and I can't remember the other name he used, but it was something to the effect, any of y'all actually listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee? Okay, so he, I grew up listening to him, my dad's, you know, loved the man, he was in our home, but, you know, in his little southern draw, he's like, God didn't create Adam and Eve and Helen, um, you know, it was just Adam and Eve, okay, so... That was God's pattern that was established way back. And not all the patriarchs had more than one wife. So clearly some had some sense of conscious conscience or internal whatever that said, this is probably not a good idea. So no laws written, but they did have a pattern to go by, so to speak. Um, also, I think we can look at the results of these decisions. When Abraham listens to his wife and takes Hagar and produces Ishmael, Things at that moment to Abraham look pretty good. I mean, he's got a son now. Hey, we're like moving this, you know, little uh, covenant right along. But the result is the formation, or at least partial formation, of the Arab race. Arch enemies, you know, for generations to come of God's chosen people. So clearly that choice did not have a positive outcome. And then lastly, I think we can conclude that this was not God's perfect plan. This was not his perfect will. But in his permissive will, he allowed this to take place. He didn't necessarily intervene and strike down all these guys as they were taking more than one wife. He allowed it to happen, and he still brought about his plan. He still used these two handmaidens to bring about some of the 12 sons of Jacob, which would later become the 12 tribes. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So he allowed it to happen. So me, I like things black and white. I like rules and regulations because everybody knows what's expected. But this is this point in Old Testament history where it's just still kind of fuzzy a little bit. It, I'll leave that to your own uh, consideration and study. Does anybody have any comments about that? Yes. In my name, me being very naive about all that stuff, life, and I always just took it as that was God's way of having more populating the earth a lot faster than just one man, one woman, and she has to, you know, that she's a machine. 
shelter. Right, 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 right. So anyway, I mean, it's certainly possible. It's just, uh, you know, I don't, and I, I, why some did and some didn't, I don't know. But, and a part of me feels a little bit bad for Jacob because, I mean, obviously the two wives, I mean, he got tricked. So, you know, the original one wasn't really his doing. Yes. That culture, that handmaiden, that child became her child. Right, right. In other words, it wasn't her, that was her property. Right, right. So, um, in that thinking, uh, I believe that whether it was Abraham or whether it was Jacob, uh, that still was that son or daughter, whatever it is, out of that marriage or whatever it was, because that was her property. Right. So right. maybe that had a little slam. And when you read, you're exactly right. When like Rachel's like, "Oh, I'm not having any kids, but let me give her, you know, let me give her to Jacob," and then she gets pregnant. She's like, "Oh, how fortunate!" I'd right, be like, jealousy, "What?" You know? Yeah. Right. 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 Um, so you're absolutely right. But, but then I think it's interesting that God made it clear to Abraham, "No, I'm not blessing Ishmael. Well, I'm going to bless him, but he's not the one through which I'm bringing my chosen people. It will be Isaac for any children that you have through Sarah." So anyway, um, very interesting. So here is this. I love charts. So here's the chart. Unless you think this is way too detailed, my uh, seventh grader had to memorize the twelve sons of Jacob and who their mama was uh, for a Bible test a couple weeks ago. And so, I mean, we're kind of just stuck, kind of just look from here up for now. Um, so Leah, Zilpah, Bilhah, and Rachel, and there is one gal in there, Dinah. Um, but yeah, so you're absolutely right though, Zeke. So Rachel basically considered all of these guys hers, so to speak, and the same with Leah. If you read these passages, it's really kind of sad, like um, when you look, obviously Leah was more fertile or had more kids than Rachel did. The, the, the scripture says that um, God opened Leah's womb because she was unloved. I just think that's so heartbreaking. But God knew that Jacob didn't have a whole lot of affinity for her, so he gave her, he blessed her with more children. Rachel, when she had Joseph, she named him Joseph, which means, may I have another son? <laughs> like, can I put my order in, please? I just thought that was kind of funny. It'd be like, wow, am I not enough? Um, and then some may know or may not know, but actually when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, she died in childbirth. So that was kind of the end of, of Rachel's life. So here we have these 12 sons. Um, yeah, and like Zeke said, I'm sure there was a whole lot of cat fighting and hmm, I, I would not want to have been in that household with uh, these four ladies going at it. And we're going to come back to this a little bit later as we go farther on down the line, but that kind of gives you a, a bit of a... Um, key event was the fathering of these 12 sons. So the key relationship here is a little different. It's, a, it's an event, but it's also the relationship that kind of transpired out of this event, and that is wrestling with the Lord. So many years and many children later, Jacob has this defining moment with the Lord. This happens in a tenuous time in Jacob's life. He has fallen out of favor with Uncle Laban. He and Uncle Laban are odds, and he packs up the four wives and the kids, and they hit the road back to Canaan. And Laban, at one point, is in hot pursuit. They, um, they, you know, meet, and Laban sort of overtakes Jacob and his entourage. And again, I'm not going to get into it tonight, but some, some really great reading, like what these wives were doing, like hiding idols. And I mean, whoo. Um, they were definitely, at this point, loyal to their husband and no longer to their father. But a covenant is made between Laban and Jacob that kind of smooths the waters guarantees a little bit of peace. They sort of part ways and say, you know, have a nice life. Then Jacob hears word that Esau wants to meet up with them. Uh-oh. All these years he worries Esau has been stewing over all the deceit and trickery, and now I'm in trouble. 
So as Esau, as Jacob is on his way to meet Esau, he has this encounter. So it's nighttime, out in the wilderness, like on the way back to Canaan. And Jacob has sent his wives and children outside the camp, potentially, I mean possibly, uh, as, a, as a measure of protection, in case Esau and his men decide to attack at night, the kids and women will be okay. And he encounters this individual, this man, and he basically wrestles with him throughout the night. So who has Genesis 32, 24 through 32? Okay. So, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him back. But Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Thank you. So who is this man that Jacob spends the night wrestling with? Is it Esau? Is it one of Esau's hitmen or henchmen out to overtake him? This is uh, another pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We had another one of those last week with God meeting Hagar, with Christ meeting Hagar, when she uh, left Abraham and Sarah's household, and God spoke to her and, and uh, tended to her. And so here we have God himself, pre-incarnate God, um, Christ, meeting with Jacob and struggling with him. We know that this was a pre-incarnate Christ because even Jacob himself says, I'm going to name this place Peniel because I have seen God and yet face-to-face, and yet my life has been preserved. So uh, what is the result of this encounter? Jacob comes away with a blessing a name change, and walking with a limp. And we don't really know if that was permanent, if he was like crippled for life, or if this was a temporary condition, but he is physically and spiritually changed as a result of this. So what is the point of this struggle between Jacob and God? Well, throughout Jacob's life, God wanted to bless him. He wanted to establish him as the man through which he would bring his chosen people. But over and over, Jacob would take matters into his own hands, kind of rushing ahead of God. And it wasn't until Jacob came face to face with God and struggled with him. This struggle was basically like a physical representation of what Jacob had been doing spiritually most of his life. When he comes face to face with God and his power, now in the passage says the man couldn't overcome him. We know that God could have overcome him had he wanted to, but he wanted Jacob to go through this this struggle and it was only then when Jacob came face to face with God and realized God's power and he, he came to grips with the fact that he had to, to accept God's plan for his life, <coughs> he stopped struggling and was finally blessed of God. A little bit later in Genesis, this event was so pivotal in the life of Jacob that a couple of chapters later in Genesis, he rids the family household of all the idols 
and really sets his course to follow God, to be obedient to God. And in in a, I can't remember exactly what chapters. It's a couple chapters beyond the the story of where the passage that the Chet just read here in thirty two. But um, he got away, got rid of all the family idols, and God speaks to him again and reiterates the blessing. The same blessing reiterates his name change. You will now be called Israel instead of Jacob. And he restates the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. He says, through you. And he basically promises Jacob all the same stuff that he promised Abraham. So this was huge life changing. And so the relationship is basically Jacob coming to grips with doing things God's way. And just another little piece of Bible trivia, in case you're ever playing Bible trivia with friends and family. Who is another... Um, person in the Bible, actually in the New Testament, who had a face-to-face encounter with God and ended up with a name change at the end of it. Paul, Saul, slash Paul, you got it. That's Jacob. The next section kind of still talks a little bit about Jacob, because obviously it's his offspring. Now, when I first started this series, I told you, sometimes I fudge on the 25 key people, 25 key events. Obviously, you know, that number nine is 12 different individuals. The key people for this section is the twelve the group of the twelve sons of Jacob or Israel? And so you see their names listed there. And again, these twelve individuals, these twelve men, came from four different ladies. The key event, there are two key events I want to touch on tonight. The first key event is the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, right here in the middle of Jacob's life and the lives of these brothers, the the idea that they're one day going to become the twelve tribes of Israel isn't all that significant. That will have much more significant as Israel's history plays out and they return hundreds of years from now to the promised land and land is doled out and they establish themselves in the promised land. Uh, And we start talking about land distribution and inheritance and all that kind of stuff. But for now, the idea is that these 12 sons form the basis of the 12 tribes of Israel. And a lot of folks, I mean, not every Jew alive today knows his or her tribe, but many do. Many, you know, take the time and do the family research or it's been passed along, and many Jews today know which tribe they come from. So it's definitely an important thing as we move through Jewish history. So if you look at this list um, under A, the sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes minus Joseph plus Ephraim and Manasseh. And then we'll talk about Levi in a minute. So if you look at lists in the Old Testament of the 12 tribes, you don't see Joseph listed. Well, where did Joseph go? He was one of, he, I mean, he was Jacob's favorite, for crying out loud. So who has Genesis 48, 5 to 6? And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt will have Israel and Manasseh. Shall be mine as rivers and Thank you. I was trying to think of a good example of this, and the best thing I could come up with is um, most of y'all know that our son Noah was my mom and dad's first grandkid, and he was Dave's parents' first grandkid too. And if you ask my parents, I mean, they'd probably say Noah ranked right up there with my brother Mike and me. I mean, they, you know, I mean, if they, you know, if they don't think so, well, probably ahead of Mike and me, you know, but, you know, here's Noah, here's me and Mike. Yeah, so um, this is basically what Jacob says. You know, the two sons you had while we're all living together in Egypt, they're like my sons, just like the sons born to me from, you know, these four ladies. 
any sons you have after that, not really, you know, they're just grandsons. You know, I'm sure Mike will be the same. You know, it's just like there's something about the, those first couple. So that's basically what Jacob's saying here. So when it comes time to establish the 12 tribes, Joseph is taken out and his inheritance or distribution is, is divided between Ephraim and Manasseh. And then Levi, why isn't Levi listed? Well, he is obviously, he, was, he would become a line, a, a tribe of Israel. But why wasn't he given any land or his descendants given land? Who's got the next one? Joshua 14.3. Got that? I got that. Okay. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe on the other side of the Jordan. For to the Levites, they had given no inheritance among them. Thank you. So when the land is being doled out in, in, uh, in the book of Joshua, as they're entering the promised land, the Levites did not get land. This was the priestly line. Their focus was not herding, farming, raising crops, raising uh, herd, or you know, raising livestock. Their focus was going to be worship in the tabernacle, and so they were not giving given a distribution of land. So definitely an important tribe of Israel, but not given land. So that's why there's a little bit of discrepancy sometimes when you see these listed. So the second key event here. You know, I mentioned when I first started this series, this was kind of my aha moment. And it was so funny. I was talking to Joy, so it's really kind of neat how the Lord works it out. Both of my ki- our kids are at Wake Christian, and um, as I'm preparing for my lessons each week, Joy's like studying for her Bible class, and she's like, hey, we're studying that. And so I'm sitting here with my 12-year-old, and she knows all these Bible stories, has been in Sunday school a lot of her whole life, and she's like, well, how in the world did the Israelites end up in Egypt? I'm like... It's right here. So the second key event is Joseph and the famine. We all know that Jake, that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He gave him a coat of many colors. Joseph, he showered him with all this attention. Joseph was kind of a quirky guy, had some weird dreams, felt compelled to share those with his brothers. Hey, you guys are going to be bowing down to me one day. And as a result of the favoritism, and the dreams, obviously these other brothers were not fans of Joseph. Some wanted to kill him. They, they, as a group, basically just decided, well, we'll just sell him into slavery and wash their hands of him, so to speak. Basically convinced Jacob that he had been killed by a wild animal. Case closed. God uses this turn of events, and again, y'all know the story, very familiar. Joseph goes straight, basically, to Potiphar's house. And it put in charge over Potiphar's home, possessions, basically everything except Potiphar's wife. She likes the way Joseph looks, makes some advances. He declines. She falsely accuses. He ends up in prison. He meets a couple of uh, gentlemen from the Pharaoh's court, and he interprets some dreams and says to the one guy, the cupbearer, who's going to get saved, who's going to be restored, the baker's toast, he says, you know, when you're back up and, you know, tasting the wine, don't forget to remember me. Of course he doesn't. Later, Pharaoh begins to have dreams and needs someone to interpret them. Joseph is remembered from prison, from jail, and he's brought up. Pharaoh is so impressed that this young man can interpret these dreams, saying, there's famine coming, we better prepare. Seven good years, seven lean years, he puts Joseph in charge of the whole shebang. So basically, second in command under Pharaoh. And so there's this famine. Egypt is well stocked because Joseph has had this, you know, ability to interpret the dream, God revealed it, and so Egypt is, they're good, they've been, you know, stored up all this extra grain and supplies for seven years, now the famine's hit a couple years in, now neighboring countries and and individuals from around Egypt are coming saying, hey, we need some grain, we need some food. 
So eventually, these other sons of Jacob travel from Canaan to Egypt and say, we need some grain. Joseph immediately recognizes them and says, these are my brothers. But he doesn't immediately reveal himself. He basically wants to find out if these brothers have changed, if their hearts have softened over these years from the, you know, the treachery, basically, that they, they um, propagated against him so many years before. So eventually, Joseph reveals himself to them, and that's where we come to Genesis 45, and this is a long passage tonight. Genesis 45, 4 to 14, who's got that? Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you have sold into Egypt. Now therefore do not grieve nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be hearing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you as posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. He hath made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, and go up to my father, and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, tarry not. Thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household, and all that thou hast, come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, as it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste to bring down my father hither, <coughs> fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Long passage. So this is basically the big reveal when Joseph said, "Hey, it's me, the guy you sold into slavery." And it's you know, I mean, he could have just let them have it. Such forgiveness, grace, and spiritual maturity. He sees this was God who did this. This wasn't you guys. Um, this was God who sent me ahead of time to prepare the way so that I could preserve, you know, the lives of those here in Egypt, but ultimately your lives. So he says, go back, get Benjamin. Or does he already see Benjamin? Benjamin's already there. Yeah, Benjamin's already there. And he says, go get dad. Come all of you. And he says, I want you to settle here in Egypt in the land of Goshen, which is the choicest spot in Egypt. We're going to talk about that next week. And he says, settle here. You know, I got you covered. We're going to, I'm going to take care of you. It's going to be great. Five more years of famine. And then, you know, basically, this is going to be great. This is how... By the time Jacob and these other 11 brothers all travel down, bring all their possessions, and establish themselves in Goshen, this is how the nation Israel ended up in Egypt. You know, fast forward 400 years, all kinds of things are happening. They're getting stronger and stronger, and uh, the Egyptians look around and say, uh, this is not good. we we gotta, we got to do something about this. And they enslave the uh, Israelites and oppress and oppress. And some 400 years later, God raises up a deliverer, Moses, which we'll talk about next week. But this is how they got here to begin with. This is why they needed to get back to Canaan, back to the uh, promised land. So it was this famine that brought them to Egypt to begin with. Now check this out. I, I think I've only figured this out or, or read this a couple of, one or two times ago from doing this. I had missed it completely before this. 
way back in Genesis 15, when God is telling Abraham about this covenant that he's making with him and how I'm going to establish you as the father of a nation, he foretells of Israel's captivity in Egypt years and years and years before it happens. Who has Genesis 15, 12 to 16? I got it. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, in horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. <coughs> and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance, and that thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Thank you. So God tells Abraham, your people, you're this nation that I haven't even really started yet. They, when, when they are a nation, they're going to be strangers in the land. They're going to be oppressed for 400 years. And then they're going to leave this land and they're going to take a ton of stuff with them. So, I mean, it's so detailed. God not only said you're going to be, they're going to be in a land enslaved for 400 years. But we know later on that when the Israelites left Egypt, they took a whole lot of plunder with them. So um, I just think it's really amazing that, I mean, we know that God knew this was going to happen, but that he even shared that with Abraham. Okay, this is how, if I didn't say that already five times, the nation Israel ended up in the land of Egypt and why they needed a deliverer that we're going to talk about more next week. So the key relationship here is the seed of woman. The first time I ever heard this, I'm like, that just sounds so, like, ethereal and spiritual and biblical. Um, what exactly does that mean? And so we're going to talk about that. The genealogy of Christ is first established. This promise of a coming Messiah is first mentioned way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. Does somebody have that one? I do. Okay. And I will put enmity between him and the woman, and between the offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his head. Thank you. So this is way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have sinned, and God is doling out the consequences of the sin. He's giving curses to the serpent, and then to man, and then to woman. And to the serpent, he says, to the serpent, Satan, one day there is one coming from this woman, a seed from this woman, who this, the, the, an individual is coming, a, a human person is coming from her, and you will manage to, to wound this individual. You will bruise this individual on the heel. You will cause a minor infliction, so to speak, which would ultimately be death on the cross. We wouldn't consider that a minor infliction, but you will, you will deal a blow. But this same individual will turn and bruise your head, will deal a death blow to sin and death once and for all. And we know that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on that third day. So this Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of a Messiah. God did not wait generations and generations and generations after Adam and Eve sinned to say, okay, guess now, you know, I've left you in this sinful state for all these generations. I guess I'll start talking about a Messiah. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, spiritual death takes place immediately. Physical death will come very soon when Cain kills Abel. But before physical death is even on the scene, 
God is already promising a Messiah who will deal a death blow to sin and death, a way of salvation in the midst of judgment. So, you know, sometimes we focus on, gosh, God's got a lot of wrath and a lot of judgment. But as I've said before, almost every time he's dealing out judgment, there is a way of salvation. There is grace and mercy along with that judgment. And we see that here in Genesis 3.15. So after Adam and Eve, after the promise of this seed of woman, with every, and it says he, so with every boy born after Adam and Eve, there's this promise of, could this be the promised Messiah? Could this be the promised Messiah? I, you know, I can't imagine being a mom back in the Old Testament. Could this be the one? Could this be the one? Every generation waiting for this promised Messiah. And we talked about um, how Old Testament saints were looking forward to this promised Messiah. We in the New Testament look back at the one who has come. And so we begin now basically um, looking at how the Jewish nation is being formed and refining the line of Christ. Refining, if you think of all of humanity as this funnel, and you have Adam and Eve and then all their descendants, and you have Adam and Eve, and then that obviously tapers with the flood to Noah and his three sons, and then it spreads back out. And then you know through these lines of men born to women, we find, let me get back to my... Um, chart here, we find the line of Christ. And so we know, obviously, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then through Leah, we have Judah, Judah, you know, farther on down, King David, and ultimately Jesus. There's some passages that um, I wanted read, and these are a little dry because they're just genealogies, but basically it's the it's the line of Christ. So who has Genesis 46, 12? Yes, ma'am. The sons of Judah and then do you also have different Ruth on there too? Yes. Oh, go ahead. You read that one, Ruth. Oh, you got that one, Ruth. 4, 18 to 22. So she left off with Perez, the sons of Perez, and then we're going to pick up there. So 4, This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Thank you. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, y'all got the bad ones over there. Um, all those names. Oh. But um, basically, and again, and then there's another passage. I think I put it on your notes. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. We will not read that tonight. But, um, you know, God makes it clear. Here is the line through which this the, I'm going to bring this promised Messiah, this Messiah that was promised way back in Genesis 3.15. And if we go back and look at, now I found a chart, and I almost put it on a slide because it is glorious. I told you I love some charts. And it starts with Adam and Eve and goes through like every chosen son basically ends up with Jesus. And it is awesome, but it's like four slides long. And so some people might just be like, mm. But um, the names that we call, the names that are associated with the nation Israel come from the individuals through which Jesus will one day, or will eventually come. And so, um, and I believe this is on your slide, or on your handout, let me go back. 
Oops, wrong way. Technology. There we go. Um, so Shem, the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem is the um, the one that God chose basically to further the line of Christ, and so that's where we get the word Semite. You hear anti-Semitism, anti-Semite. Semite was uh, synonymous for the Jews. Uh, from Abraham, we got the, he was the father of the Hebrews. I don't really know where that came from, but that's the name that's associated with them. Judah, or back up, Jacob slash Israel, we get the term Israelites or Israelis, and then Judah, we get the term Jews. So these men that would um, be the ones that God appointed as the, the specific line through which Jesus would one day come, uh, those same individuals had names that were associated with the, line of, with, uh, the nation Israel. The idea is, I think it's really interesting, when we look back at that picture of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, you know, I would think, in my human mind, well, Jacob loved Rachel, and so Rachel had Jacob and ben, or Joseph and Benjamin, so surely Jesus would come through one of them, because that's, you know, the favorite line. But, I, you know, God doesn't always choose the line through which Jesus will come as who is favored among the individuals of that time. Are you going to say something, Zeke? You look like you're getting something. No, I'm just thinking the... I think, I could be wrong, but was Judah the first son? Oh, I have to go back and read. I no, can't I can't remember for sure. Well, I was just, in my mind, if that be the case, I have to look. That might be one of the ones that really That, that would have come through the right. first line of the first son. He wasn't the first one. Was it, I was thinking Reuben. I don't yeah, know. Was it Reuben? Reuben the son. Okay, Reuben. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. So I don't really know why God chose, you know, why Ham, Shem, and Japheth, why Shem and not Japheth, I don't know, but... Uh, as we go through, we will continue to see, uh, you know, David will be another one that we'll kind of hit on as the, you know, great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Um, but the, the key relationship here, the key point is that the Messiah is first promised way back in Genesis, right after sin enters the world. And from that point on, we're constantly looking forward to this coming Messiah. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? The numbers in the genealogy that you have here are those the order of the birth what the, on the chart it yeah. could be it could very well could be you mean the 12 sons yeah because if it is Reuben is, is number Simeon? one yeah, yeah that's probably Reuben. oh yeah yeah it's got it numbers Reuben. under it yeah Durr. yeah thanks um i did that on purpose i just forgot yeah so um sure. i surprised my own self um yeah so it's got a number there sorry yeah there you go so like one two three four across the top and then dan skip over to dan's number five hey you're so good Carl. thanks so, yeah, there you go. So, we will pick up next week with Moses. So, thank you very much for your attention.